0: Well, we're making progress through this book of Revelation. We're up now to the uh, the fifth of the seven main visions in Revelation. And this fifth vision is also the third of three visions in Revelation where we're told explicitly that there are seven parts and each part of the vision is actually numbered. Uh, and these three Visions of seven, uh, what we're seeing is they give us different aspects or understandings of the different aspects of the nature of God's judgments uh, in the world. So we saw the seven seals back in chapter six to, to chapter eight, in which God's judgments are judgments of hope. As the Lamb opened each seal, We were progressively given a picture of how he has been forming and choosing and purifying a people for himself, using the suffering and the persecution that comes from living in a world that's under the curse of sin and the groaning of creation, the raging of nations. He uses all that to refine and to purify his church. And in those uh, seven seals we saw the church as the slain martyrs under the altar, crying out for justice. But then we also saw them as the great multitude from every nation who had been sealed by God and were worshipping at his throne. Then we saw the seven trumpets, chapters 8 to 11, in which we saw that these judgments are also judgments of mercy, trumpet calls through which he is calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus. We also saw the church in the midst of these judgments that were, while they, the church was secure within the boundaries of God's house, the temple, they were also being called to go out to proclaim the Gospel to the nations all around them. Now, these two sevens showed us that God's purpose in judgement is much more than just balancing the scales of justice. His justice is a restorative justice designed to bring rebellious people into a place of reconciliation with himself God's salvation always comes through his acts of judgement and we see that most clearly in the cross of Christ. The greatest act of judgement but also the greatest act of salvation. One of the most commonly asked questions or objections to the Christian faith is, If God is good, why does he allow suffering? Or even the stronger argument would be, why does he cause suffering? Why does he judge? Why does he bring judgments? Now, we might be tempted to give some inadequate, non-biblical answers to that question. We might go with the human free will argument, which says that God is somehow under obligation to respect our free will and to not turn us into robots who can't love him uh, from our own volition. But that's an argument that actually comes from philosophy, not from the scriptures. The Bible nowhere uses that as an argument to explain uh, the suffering of, of life or what seems to be the absence of God's justice. Or we might go with the, it's not God's sovereign will argument which says that God doesn't have a say in everything that happens in the world. He doesn't know the future and he's just as shocked as we are when bad things happen. But that clearly that undermines the biblical view of who God is as the all-knowing, all-powerful Lord of creation. Well, what is the biblical response to that question? Well, it's twofold. Firstly, as we've been seeing, we know that he is using all things, good and bad, blessings and judgments, to bring about his good, sovereign purposes. So, he has a good and righteous reason for allowing and even decreeing things that come to pass. Because God is God... He is able to decree the existence of evil and the suffering that flows from it without actually being the author of evil. If you can't quite get your head around that, it's because you're a creature who is actually not able by your own understanding to grasp What Paul says in Romans 11 is the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. His judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? That's in Romans 11. If we were able to fully understand the relationship between the goodness of God and suffering then we'd be equal with God or greater than Him. Secondly, we're told that God is patient. He has a good reason for taking the time that He has and is taking to accomplish His good purposes. Time which to us seems way too long because it, it doesn't happen within the span of our short lifetimes. Why did he choose to use 2,000 years of Israel's history and who knows how much longer in addition to the 2,000 years of the church's history before he wraps everything up? Well, we cannot say why except to be thankful that his patience means we are included in that plan, he'll be continually and patiently at work in judgments of grace and mercy and hope until all of those whom he has foreknown from before the foundation of the world are brought in. So we can be thankful that his judgments have been judgments of hope and mercy, always accomplishing his goal of the salvation of his people. Every morning that the sun rises should remind us of his ongoing patience. Every new day is an opportunity for us to live in his grace. So, the seals, the trumpets and now we come to the seven bowls and we're told Straight up, the nature of these judgments, they are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now this word translated finished uh, it's the Greek word Teleo, which means complete and perfect. It means finished, not in the sense of time has run out, but every piece has now been put into place. It's the word that Jesus cried out from the cross when he said, it is finished, seconds before his death, meaning he had completed every part of the Father's plan. He'd done everything the Father had sent him to do to accomplish our salvation. So the judgments signified by these bowls fill in the full picture of God's judgments. So his action of judgment is not just about restoration, judgments of hope, building, refining, purifying his people or about reconciliation, that image will appear in a moment. There we are the judgments of mercy calling people back to repentance and faith, but they are also about pure justice, the vindication of God's character as the judge of the earth who will always do what is right. So all his patience means that He allows sin and evil to endure unpunished throughout this present age while the Gospel is being proclaimed. He will not allow it to endure forever into the new heavens and the new earth. Romans 3.25 tells us that in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The sins that had been graphically described just before this verse with this devastating conclusion, no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asp is under their lips, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and uh, misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you want to know how great God's patience is? Even greater than the depths of human sin. He has persevered with human beings, not bringing us to the sudden swift end that we deserve because he had already planned two great moments of perfect justice. One is at the end of the age, which will be the judgement of the living and the dead, when not one single part of, of evil will go unpunished, no matter how small. The other is in the cross of Jesus, in which he preemptively brought forward the final day of judgment and placed it upon Jesus, so that mercy may be found in the midst of his judgment. So we're told in Romans three twenty five. Jesus' death was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just or righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The last judgment was brought forward in time, placed upon Jesus at his death so that all who look to him in faith can truly say, the wrath of God is finished, as far as I'm concerned. It was finished, it was completed at the cross. So, in order to not stand condemned at the final judgement, we must face it before it comes by casting ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ. By refusing to repent, we're essentially issuing God. A challenge. We're presuming that we will be able to escape his perfect justice forever. But this divine forbearance, this patience will not continue forever. The day of the completion of his judgments will come and that's what these bowls represent. But before we look at the actual bowls, in fact, we won't look at the bowls until next week. In fact, this morning we're really only focusing in on the first four verses of our reading because we need to see the scene that is set for the pouring out of these seven bowls. By now we should be used to seeing God's people being portrayed in various ways in each of these visions In the previous vision, we saw ourselves described as the 144,000 redeemed from the earth, standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, singing a new song before the throne. Well, this is the same group of people, I believe, we have here in verses 2 to 3. But a different aspect of their location is emphasised. We're told that they are standing beside a sea of glass, which is mingled with fire. Let's remind ourselves what this sea of glass is. It first appeared in John's second vision, when he was taken up into heaven to see God seated on the throne, the throne which has remained visible right through all of this book so far, And once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal and round the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So God's throne room was presented in the layout of the tabernacle in which there was a bronze lava or sea which the priests would use to wash in so that they could carry out their duties in the tabernacle. The priests would essentially be baptised so that they could offer sacrifices, so that they could approach the holy place. The washing of water symbolises the removing of all that is unclean to make them clean. In Solomon's temple, this bronze sea was a massive vessel that held up to 50,000 litres. That's bigger than the average backyard rainwater tank. Hence its description as a sea, a large volume of water. Now it wasn't just a bath for washing, it was a reminder of when Israel as a nation were baptized by passing through the Red Sea on their way out of Egypt. And this is the symbolism that's used here. These people are standing beside a sea that's been used to bring judgment on their enemies while it's mingled with fire. In the, the Bible Nearly every time fire is used symbolically, it's speaking of the presence and the judgment of God. So they're like Israel, standing on the eastern bank of the Red Sea, having passed over on dry ground and then watching as the waters then closed over the Egyptian army that were pursuing them. The Lord had sent ten judgments on Egypt until Pharaoh finally let them go, yet there was one more conclusive judgment to come. So as the Israelites came to the border of Egyptian territory, they thought they were hemmed in, the sea on one side, Pharaoh's advancing army on the other. But Moses said to them, "'Fear not, stand firm.' And see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord had brought them to this seemingly impossible predicament in which the only way they could be saved was by His sovereign action. They were to stand still And they were to be silent and see the Lord work. And at the Red Sea, the Lord brought his judgments to completion upon Egypt. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. But then, on the other side of the sea, they did anything but stand still and be silent. What happened next? Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. And the song goes on for the whole chapter. And at the end of the chapter we're told, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. We hear tambourines here now, don't we? It's good. They sang. They didn't stand still anymore. They danced. The right and true response to the Lord's mighty acts in salvation are to sing and to dance. This song of Exodus 15 wasn't just a one-off song. Uh, The verb used is sang, it's, it's in the imperfect tense, implying that it became a song that was sung often throughout Israel's history. And Jewish commentators have said, the scriptures contain lots of songs, but only one song par excellence, and they're referring to this song of Moses right up to the present day. It's still sung in Jewish synagogues whenever the story of the Exodus is read and on the seventh day of Passover, obviously. So, while Moses and the Israelites sang this song, they were led by Miriam and her band of female dancers. Some Bible scholars actually say it's it's. Likely that actually Miriam was the author of this song, or at least the one who led it. Uh, This is the place where she is called a prophetess. And there's slightly different wording. Did you notice that Moses and Israel sang, I will sing to the Lord? Miriam says, sing to the Lord. It's a command. It's her speaking in a prophetic place here. Remember Miriam? She was there right at the very beginning of the Exodus story. Moses' sister, standing in the background as her baby brother, an infant, was put in the basket, hid in the reeds of the Nile. She saw Moses pass through the waters, rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, returned to his mother, and given the name Moses, which means literally drawn out of the water. So it's quite fitting that 80 years later, Miriam is the one leading this song, singing about the passing of the whole nation safely through water. So she appears like bookends to this chapter of Israel uh, in Egypt which comes to completion with this final act of judgement. So, back to the people in Revelation, standing by the sea of glass. They too are singing. But it's a medley, two songs now. The song of Moses, who led the Exodus from Egypt, and the song of the Lamb, who has led the true exodus out of sin and death and slavery to the devil. Now, we know what the Song of Moses is, we've just looked at it. But what's the Song of the Lamb? Well, I believe he's referring here to the same song we heard back in chapter 5 of Revelation. After the lamb that was slain had approached the throne, taken the scroll from the hand of the Father. It was a three-part song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And then to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. So it's a medley, the Song of Moses, the Song of the Lamb, but then this medley of songs is given a Coda. A coda is uh, when we sing a song or a hymn and then there's one last bit that's added to the end which kind of sums everything up. It sums up the essence of these two songs. Now notice how the focus of this song is the actions and the character of God. Great and amazing are your deeds. Just and true are your ways. You alone are holy. Your righteous acts have been revealed. And then secondary to this is the actions of human beings. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? All nations will come and worship you. We saw that trio of fear, glorify and worship God in the previous vision. Go back and have a read. But our actions of worship should always be a a response to the declaration of God's great and amazing deeds. We need to take serious note of that. So many popular modern worship songs are focused on us and our deeds or on our subjective or emotional experience of God, but say very little about the specific things that God has actually done in history through creation and through redemption. Now, we do need to sing songs about the reality of God at work today in our lives. We do need to sing songs that are us giving our response to those things, but they must be on this solid foundation of God who is at work in time and space and history. For Israel, their foundational song was the Song of Moses. That defined their whole identity. It was a song that told of God's great act of deliverance. Well, for Christians, our foundational song is the Song of the Lamb, declaring what Jesus has done to deliver us in his life and death and resurrection. Our subjective experience, our emotional response, means nothing if it's not built on that foundation. Our worship is empty, it's superficial, if we are not declaring to one another the mighty acts of God. Now, there are songs in Scripture, including the Song of Moses, that speak of our actions. I will sing to the Lord, they sang. But our actions are always grounded in and are a response to his actions. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. We sing here occasionally this song, Here I Am to Worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. Some people aren't too keen on that just because it's a Hillsong song. But they also maybe don't like it because at first glance, well, it seems to be a song about us and what we're doing. But we can only sing this chorus after we've sang the first verse, Light of the World. You stepped down into darkness, opened my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you, hope of a life spent with you. Worship is primarily declaring God's great and amazing deeds with the appropriate human response of fearing, glorifying, worshipping him. Now, all that being said, we also need to take note of what this worship we're seeing here is specifically a response to God's full and complete justice. Remember, Israel sang the song of Moses as they looked upon the dead bodies of the Egyptians on the beach. These people are singing That song and the song of the Lamb as they are witnessing the seven bowls of God's final judgment being poured out on the earth. How does that make you feel? I bet it doesn't quite sit right with you. How many of your favourite hymns and songs are on the theme of God's judgment and the destruction of his enemies? We don't have many, even though there is plenty of talk about God's judgement in the Bible. When I searched the internet for songs and hymns with the theme of God's judgement, not just hymns that might mention it in a line or two, but hymns that were written specifically on that topic, I couldn't find many that were written any later than the beginning of the 20th century. Interesting one reason i believe we tend to avoid and no longer write these songs is again because of our modern worship culture that says that church songs always need to be happy and positive and leave us with a warm fuzzy feeling rather than a sense of the fear of the lord and a knowledge of his majestic holiness that causes us to fall down on our faces before his throne. We dare not sing hymns about God's judgment because in our minds it portrays God as not being nice. But if we were to apply that criteria to the Bible, we'd have to tear out a large number of the songs and the Psalms that speak about the harsh realities of life, the suffering, the uncertainty, the conflict, the oppression, the attacks of enemies, all that call out, that calls us to call out to God, where is your justice? Come, bring an end to evil, save us, O Lord. The Israelites were not gloating over the death of the Egyptians. They were rejoicing in the fact that their God had shown them Himself to be holy and righteous and just in saving them from their oppressors, leading them through the sea that brought judgment on their enemies. We can look at the judgments of God that are being poured out on the earth today and will be poured out on that day, and we can rejoice that by grace we're on the other side in the presence of the Lamb, our Saviour and the throne of our Father. And we can look forward to the day of judgement, not because we take delight in the death of the unrepentant, but because we know it will be the completion of God's justice. No more will we need to ask, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? We'll see the perfect justice of God revealed and we'll be able to rest in knowing that he has done what's right. So as we stand beside the sea of glass mingled with fire, as we sing the song of the Lamb, we sing of the one who has conquered, the one who's qualified to come and judge the earth, to bring justice against evil people because he is the one who has gone through that judgement himself to redeem his people. We know that we deserve not to be saved. We deserve to be at the bottom of the sea. We deserve to be judged to face the fire of God's holy wrath but because of Jesus we can see that fire of judgement is behind us, it's finished, it's in our past not our future. And knowing that should enable us to dare to sing of God's judgement because we're singing about the truth of the character of our God, the God who has saved us through that judgement. So we're going to do that now. We're going to sing a hymn and another interesting thing is when I accessed this hymn and downloaded the lyrics, the uh, modern publishers of this hymn had left out a verse and you'll know the verse when we come to it. It may be a verse that makes you squirm a bit but it is the truth of our God who is the righteous judge. Let's stand and sing. See, he comes with clouds descending.